Okay, Dr. Robert Malone, welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important topic, uh, one that you popularized on your appearance with Joe Rogan, and I think even caused to go viral to some extent, and that is what you called mass formation psychosis, uh, which I have just called mass psychosis and was, funny enough, writing about in the months leading up to your appearance with Joe Rogan. So if I could, I would like to read this abridged description from Mr. Desmet from his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, that describes mass psychosis. And this is Mass Formation, a brief summary, describing totalitarianism as being characterized by a process of large-scale mass formation. And there are four conditions needed for large-scale mass formation psychosis, which are a large amount of people must feel alone and isolated. Their lives must feel pointless and meaningless. There must be high levels of free-floating anxiety, and there must be high levels of free-floating frustration and aggression. And essentially, if all these conditions are met and there's a narrative distributed through the mass media, which indicates an object of anxiety and provides a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, then all the free-floating anxiety might be associated to this object and a huge willingness might be observed to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. So, scary. Um, could you give me a small description of mass psychosis in your view and how it forms and why? So I'm a student of Matthias, and uh, this is not my hypothesis. It's not my field of research or expertise. So let's just lay that marker down on the table right now. Um, I did have the pleasure of being in a couple podcasts with him and then also spending time and working with him in Andalusia a couple weeks ago in the context of a documentary film shoot uh, for a group called Headwinds uh, that's out of uh, um, both Andalusia and um, Belgium in particular. So he flew down to Andalusia and we spent a week together more or less uh, shooting and talking and discussing these matters. And so that's, that's the basis uh, for my commentary is not that it's in my core competence. I'm a virologist and an immunologist and, all, and many other things, but I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, and, and this is not my, my field of expertise. In terms of examples, history is littered with them. Uh, and, and I think personally, uh, you know, certainly uh, the experience of 1920s and 1930s Germany, where you had a, a population of highly educated individuals that um, were uh, um, subject to enormous economic stressors and, uh, and displacement, uh, social um, turmoil, and met the key criteria. So that's, that's often one example. Uh, Stalinist Russia is another example to illustrate the point. Um, a case can be made that uh, this was a fundamental process involved in uh, the uh, communist hysteria in the late 1950s. Uh, the the uh, events after the powers got hit 
uh, has, have elements of uh, this kind of mass formation phenomena and our, our uh, decision to focus on Afghanistan and uh, the Gulf War when, when that really wasn't the issue here. Uh, um, uh, so there, and then it goes back in history. You can make a case for the French Revolution has many of the elements here and, uh, and walk it back through history. Matthias makes the case that what, that this is accelerated during the 20th century and into the 21st century, this, uh, the penetrance, let's say of the mass formation phenomena. And he lays it squarely at the feet of the rise of major media. Mm. He makes the case that uh, we now have developed um, increasingly through the 20th and now into the 21st century in a big way, the ability to provide a harmonized single narrative to a very large uh, fragment of, of first national and now global populations. And so this, this ability of the media or those that control the media to propagate a message in times in which these conditions exist. And some would say that they're even players that actively manipulate uh, the environment so that these conditions arise uh, for their own purposes. Uh, but but that's that's the position that Matthias takes. And I think that what what I found fascinating, even in the case of the triggering of the main, mainstream media and big tech by my uttering those words and giving that brief example, which I think is probably two minutes out of a three hour interview or something like that, two to three minutes. And yet it, it clearly triggered uh, media and tech worldwide. Uh, I don't think you can debate that and, uh, and provoked a disproportionate response that, that was uh, really out of, you know, just disconnected uh, the, the stimulus response coupling there was quite exaggerated. Uh, and um, and I, I think that certainly suggests that it hit a raw nerve, uh, that, that they had awareness of their role in manipulating society and manipulating the conditions over. Yes, you, you, you seemingly held up a mirror to the psychosis that has gripped society recently. Um, and I appreciate you laying that out. One thing I'd like to add here to Desmond's perspective is, uh, I mentioned to you this previously, the idea of property right violations. Yes. And how I see this playing into mass psychosis historically. And I guess you could, the, the center of this thesis is really, if you want to drive people crazy, just keep changing the rules, right? Um, I think there's... So, yeah, my understanding is that there is uh, good uh, research uh, to back that position um, from uh, the type of people that are in Matias's community. But further to your point, and we now, since our last talk, we now have the two case studies of uh, the uh, GoFundMe and Give, Send, Go uh, actions on the part of the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. Uh, which uh, anybody who thinks about currency and ownership and value and uh, international finance and the role of tech in the banking system, that, that has to be a wake-up call. 
then then now we have the uh, position of Justin Trudeau that he's comfortable seizing bank accounts basically for infractions of free speech. Uh, I, I think that that you know we've had this long simmering concern about the uh, social credit, the logic behind the social credit system and its potential uh, socket with uh, banking and, and capital. Mm. And uh, then as if that isn't enough uh, for this particular dumpster fire, what I'm hearing uh, from a variety of sources are projections of a major financial uh, disruptive event uh, on a fairly near-term horizon uh, coming from financial analysts and others as as the government has, I think uh, you, from your point of view, the printing of the money, it, a case can be made that that's actually direct theft mm. uh, from people who uh, um, currently hold currency. Uh, um, so, so I think I think your your concept here, and and I'm reminded someone pointed out to me the other day that Niccolo Machiavelli had uh, specifically called out that if you really want to get uh, the populace upset, um, what you do is you take their money. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? The most important tool in the sphere of human action, take it away, people get upset. Um, I do think it runs quite deep, actually, uh, largely because I consider money to be a psychotechnology, or at least a hybrid psychotechnology on par with something like literacy or numeracy. So you can imagine if someone came in and started changing the definitions of words, it would make communication very difficult. Right. And similarly, if we corrupt money, it makes economic communication very difficult. And as some of the, uh, I guess, preconditions to this, you mentioned mass confusion being one of them, or a disruption of the sense-making apparatus. And for better or worse, money is the sense-making apparatus for a lot of our major decisions, right? What, what, what you're buying, what you're doing, where you're traveling, et cetera. It's, it's a big <coughs> part of it. So I'd like to read one more excerpt here. And this is something I wrote, and just to kind of set the stage for this, uh, I wrote, a mass psychosis is an epidemic of delusion. It occurs when a large portion of society loses touch with reality and descends into madness. Like individual psychosis, a mass psychosis manifests when agents of action lose touch with their respective arenas of action. Although the causes of mass psychosis are multivariate, I assert that money, a critical psychotechnological extension of the human mind and the highest form of private property, is an instrumental touchstone for an integrated relationship between individual agents and their respective socioeconomic arenas of action. So, um, and we have historical examples of this, as you mentioned. The, the 1692 Salem witch trials were a mass psychosis. Uh, granted, not a particularly massive mass psychosis, but a psychosis nonetheless. Uh, what we, what very few people understand is that so the 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 psychosis peaked in 1692, but from 1642 to 1690, there was a mass counterfeiting situation uh, where basically the mint was established to try to fight counterfeiting, but then it was corrupted and it did some counterfeiting itself. So there's this 
you know, multi-decade experience of property right violations leading up to the burning of witches in the Salem witch trials. We have the 1933 rise of Hitler to power, and he rose from the ashes of the Weimar Republic hyperinflation in 1923. Absolutely. So in almost all instances, we have the counterfeiting of currency or fiat currency or property right violations more generally um, leading to these, these psychotic episodes. And that makes sense that you said earlier that he um, doesn't commented on an acceleration in the 20th century, because that's the century we had global centralized banking. I, I, I don't recall him speaking about the uh, role of, of capital and finance in uh, these conditions as a precursor. And uh, I, I recommend that uh, you, um, you and Matthias have a follow-on podcast to uh, cover that. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a very active intellect, and um, I guarantee he's going to find value in uh, exploring this idea with you. Thank you. I'll do that. I'll definitely put him on the list to reach out to you. Um, okay, I'd like to ask Plus you. He's, uh, he's promoting his, uh, the English version of his book which is now available on pre-order on Amazon. So uh, he's got a motivator. Wonderful. <laughs> Good. I, I will reach out to him. Let me, so I read, um, this is from not your Substack, but one you linked to that you were describing the cohorts in a mass psychosis. And you're saying that essentially it breaks down into one third each. There's a third of people that are fully hypnotized, believers in the narrative. There's a third of people that are sort of on the fence. They're, they don't know if they believe or not believe. And there's a third of people that reject the narrative and see it as false from the outset. Um, and, and that could be, that could be 20, 40, 20. Yeah. Uh, let's that, that up. No. Um, uh, but you get the point. It, it's that those are really rough uh, blocks. Often that middle group is larger than the two wings mm-hmm. in the distribution. That makes sense. Given that, um, typical cohort separation, what can we be doing to tilt the scales in favor of uh, fighting mass psychosis? So what Matthias taught me was that uh, the um, most effective option is uh, for dissenters to speak uh, but they must do so in a non-threatening fashion. So the role of the dissenter community is crucial in keeping the overall society from uh, falling deeper into the process, into the mass formation is the language he uses. Uh, and they absolutely, it's, it's kind of almost a moral obligation that they continue to dissent but that they absolutely must do so in a nonviolent fashion because the uh, the 20 or 30 percent or so that are within the phenomena will will get quite are prone to becoming quite violent if they have a reason to do so, any excuse to do so. And they do actively um, exclude they they work they will work. part of part of the process is, that they will actively work to uh, exclude or 
you know, the, the term defenestrate applies uh, to uh, meaning throw somebody out of a window uh, that's a political opponent. Um, they, they will, they, they, whether it's violent or nonviolent or just deplatforming from Twitter as a trivial example, they, they will actively work to exclude those who they perceive essentially as heretics, mm. as, as not uh, comporting with the, um, what, what really becomes a, ri- a ritual a religious ritual in the sense of Matthias talks about ritual behavior that, that uh, the, as, as the mass formation process develops, those that are within it will develop rituals and uh, ritual truths that it, one must be basically obedient to, obedient to. Mm. And uh, um, uh, they, they will, uh, consume all of those that they can that are perceived as uh, not aligned with whatever that ritualistic behavior is or those underlying uh, precepts or, or uh, you know, structural assumptions. And then having done so over time, they will begin to uh, consume themselves. And uh, Stalin's Russia and the Communist Party is is the most uh, clear example of that. Another thing he points out is that that there's kind of two embodiments of this. One is in terms of the leadership. One is that the the leader of the the mass arises organically from within, and he cites Hitler as an example of that. That that kind of that the mass formation process preceded uh, Hitler's rise, and then he was able to capitalize on it and kind of gain control of it. And then there's other examples where the mass formation is triggered, and uh, the leader is imposed or or arrives from an external source, and and then leads the uh, the people uh, that that are within the process, but. Um, uh, getting back to your, your, your key point, what, what can be done about it? Uh, what, what he basically, he's quite clear that, uh, the only, uh, effective is once, once it's fully engaged, the only effective uh, strategy is to, uh, um, speak uh, as as a uh, as as someone that is not uh, within the the formation uh, to speak your truth to serve as an objector and uh, um, that 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 comes with significant risk and uh, and um, that one uh, is, is in physical danger and uh, one has to be very cautious about actions and uh, uh, the choice of words, uh, et cetera, because of the uh, volatility and risk of those that are within the process of retaliating. Over. Hmm. Yeah, this seems to be, preying on 
a deeply held instinct humans have perhaps that in times of chaos fear is predisposing us i you know, i guess as you know, through our history as hunter hunters and gatherers perhaps if there's chaos going on in the outside world we we sort of have this fear of the chaos and we're predisposed to turning towards strong decisive leadership uh so matthias spoke to this point to some extent um uh when he sets up the logic of the free-floating anxiety he mm. speaks of the uh anxiety free-floating he he contrasts free-floating anxiety with uh a uh a rational anxiety that a hunter gather as the metaphor for the primordial human state might have for a predator like a lion or a tiger or something okay so that one one has uh a rational anxiety about this uh, predator animal where the human in question is basically a prey animal. Uh, and so you have anxiety, but it has a particular focus. You can visualize the tiger or the lion. And he, he uh, refers to this as more of an adaptive anxiety and an appropriate anxiety. The free-floating anxiety is where you have that same a fight or flight response, but you don't know what to tag it to. And mm. so that's that's what happens with the uh, formation phenomena is that a, uh, in a group of individuals who are by definition disassociated from each other are given a, uh, a mental representation of what the threat is at a time when they have this uh, free-floating threat uh, threat response, and then they're able to focus that anxiety onto that uh, threat object that's given to them uh, or that they somehow encounter. And then he says this, there's a bunch of nuances here that's kind of useful. Uh, he says that what happens is then this, this collection of individuals that have this aggression and anxiety will focus it on this thing and it will give their lives purpose they now they now have the solution for mm. what's basically the angst that they have in their head of the associated with this free flying anxiety so now they have a focus they have a reason for that anxiety it gives their lives a purpose and it gives them as a group a common enemy a common objective mm. but one of the nuances that he points out that that makes a, this kind of a mass formation group or crowd different is that um, the individuals typically have no connectivity to each other. All of their connectivity is directed towards the central leader. And uh, so this is part of what enables the uh, throwing each other under the bus or the spying on your neighbor, that kind of behavior. Because you're not actually connected to your neighbor, you're connected to the glorious leader, and so uh, that that can be exploited, right? That that people, and this is what happens. The the example in Stalin's Russia, where a large fraction of the Central Communist Party ended up going to the gulags, and and turning on each other, and even kind of self-confessing, uh, volunteering guilt uh, because they had some way displeased the leader. Uh, Stalin in this case. Uh, another nuance relating to this, he said that 
the way that you can discriminate, because of course the the mass formation phenomena explicitly is about totalitarianism, mm-hmm. which he points out is different from dictatorship. Uh, in in a dictatorship, there is a central leader, and uh, the the formation process that the the um, the focus on that leader is basically driven by a cult of personality. Uh, so if that leader passes away for some reason, the uh, fascist or totalitarian, you know, uh, the dictatorship state will collapse. But mm. it, what he says is in a totalitarian, a true totalitarian environment, uh, the leader is expendable. Mm. Uh, it, the, the mass is focused on the phenomena and the power of the state or other organization that they've joined uh, to resolve that event. And it's independent of a given leader. Uh, so I, those were kind of, I, I thought, you know, I, I don't recall him talking about that in podcasts, but in speaking to him personally, I thought those were kind of important insights. But obviously, all of this is by the by the nature of the name of the book. He's mm-hmm. speaking about the psychology of totalitarianism. That is where this comes from. Yeah, that's truly scary because if the leader is expendable and replaceable, then you could, in theory, have a perpetual totalitarian regime. Um, and, and I think a case can be made that that is basically what's being set up with the World Economic Forum, just to, to put a pin in it. I agree there. It doesn't seem... Like there's much other purpose other than something like that by the WEF. Um, so we have this situation where confusion is created. I would ar- I would argue largely via the violation of property as you're you're disintegrating economic agents from their arenas of action. But this is also done through media, right? Propagating these false narratives and whatnot. So you're creating confusion. Also increasing economic scarcity at the same time. If you're violating people's property rights, it's harder to make ends meet, clearly. Then some strong man presents themselves or strong regime, I guess, presents themselves as the solution. And then they effectively, they're they're co-opting mass attention, right? They're inserting themselves as the solution to this free-floating anxiety. Um, So isn't this mechanically the same as hypnosis at the individual level, just being perpetrated at a mass scale? So that that's Matthias's thesis, uh, as as you say. It it does have elements though of the wag the dog political strategy, as you point out in your comments just now. Yeah, it's, so in hypnosis, what's being done at the end of on the individual's psych, uh, psyche? Is it the similar thing or just creating a confusing situation and having them focus on a, a totem or an object of some kind? That, that, as I understand it, is his uh, core uh, uh, assumption, is mm-hmm. that you have, whether one creates this state of confusion or the state of confusion arises organically from existing uh, factors, uh, such as uh, economic um, uh, fragmentation or or turbulence uh, the um, the uh, 
the process which leads to the the mass formation under this process is one where those that have these pre-existing conditions have their attention focused on a single uh, point which is identified as the source of their free-floating aggression and anxiety. Mm. Uh, so, so and, and then typically what's uh, advanced by the, um, the leader or organization that is identified as providing the solution, you know, the current example would be the vaccine and the, and the vaccine developer, manufacturer, distributor network um, is, the, is the magical solution uh, and the one and, one and only, the one ring that's allowed, right? The one and only solution. Uh, uh, so that, so that the, the crowd that forms uh, identifies this common source of angst and identifies in uh, either the, the uh, technical the solution or those who are offering the solution as basically their messiah, their, uh, their way out of this source of, of angst. And what this relates to another thing that Matthias spoke, spoke about, I alluded earlier to the um, uh, kind of tribal uh, ritual that, that comes about in this process which uh, doesn't have to have any functional relationship, may, may well not have any functional relationship to the trigger. Uh, you know, one could make a case that masks are an example of this. Masks are a ritualistic behavior that have no uh, scientific basis for providing the uh, thing that is, uh, um, uh, that, that the belief system asserts they provide, but that's irrelevant. Uh, so you see the mask wearer that, you know, the, the example being the mask wearer driving solo in, in their vehicle, right? Uh, right? Um, uh, as, as an embodiment of this ritualistic behavior. And I, the other day, I had a funny little cognitive moment of myself. I was we, I've been traveling a lot lately, and so I've been forced because I've been spending so much time in airports, uh, in in Uber rides, right, um, to to uh, wear masks a lot more than I would normally. Uh, airports, Uber rides, and then the planes themselves—they're, you know, the mask Nazis are always there. And uh, and I I went to go outside and walked by my dresser where there's a mask that I use when I'm traveling. And I felt the, the tug, the emotional tug of uh, wanting to put that mask on because it was the correct behavior for moving out into the environment, right? And if anybody's resistant to it, it should be me. Uh, and yet there it was operating at that deep emotional psychological level, kind of bypassing the cognitive uh, forebrain. Hmm. Wow. No, that's a, that's a great framing. And yeah, I mean, mask psychosis is probably <laughs> the, at least the prelude to our coming mass psychosis, right? That's already been set in motion. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's the, the thesis that it is the masks are 
um, an intentional, uh, um, an intentional ritual to show obedience to right. to the uh, leadership or to the narrative. Yeah, almost like a Pavlovian preconditioning of some kind, right? To just get get it, get people used to doing what they're told. Precisely. And, and that was, that was kind of, it was kind of a Pavlovian response that I recognized occurring in myself as I got ready to go outside and get in the car. Wow. It's, it's crazy to think about that. We are actually wrestling with this, you know, being human versus being hijacked as animals in a way, right? We still have these lower, the reptilian brain and all these lower level, um, I but guess the, the scary thing is, is the disclosures to my mind, the uh, disclosures like in the UK, I was speaking today with Neil Oliver for about an hour and a half or two hours, you know, the commentator from Great Britain News that's been so eloquent and outspoken about all this. He was expressing his concerns about various things that he's seen in the UK. And uh, we spoke about the nudging and other social manipulation, including via fear. Uh, that's mm-hmm. gone on in the UK that now is the subject of open uh, government investigations because it was government agents. But um, he he was he was very open that uh, that this is this has been a growing trend in Great Britain, uh, and and that it's certainly uh, manifested in you know writ large here uh, during the outbreak and. You know, where as as we were talking about what is the out for these uh, government officials that have uh, promoted and participated into this this process that we've seen and the mismanagement. And uh, we both agreed that they they they're going to have to double down. Mm-hmm. Uh there, there's no way that, you know, if some of the trends that he's seeing and I'm seeing are real, uh, if, if the government officials were to fully own it, what's happened, uh, there would be a significant risk of violent um, uprising. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yen Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So they have to keep pushing the lie further. I think that's I, that's what I see in my crystal ball. Yeah. 
Well said. I want to read an excerpt from your substack now. You wrote that the conditions to set up mass formation psychosis include lack of social connectedness and sense-making, as well as large amounts of latent anxiety and passive aggression. When people are inundated with a narrative that presents a plausible, quote-unquote, object of anxiety and strategy for coping with it, then many individuals group together to battle the object with a collective single-mindedness. This allows people to stop focusing on their problems, avoiding personal mental anguish, Instead, they focus all their thought and energy on this new object, a mass formation psychosis. The group becomes increasingly bonded and connected. Their field of attention is narrowed and they become unable to consider alternative points of view. Leaders of the movement are revered, unable to do, no, unable to do any wrong. Left unabated, a society under the spell of mass formation will support a totalitarian governance structure capable of otherwise unthinkable atrocities in order to maintain compliance. Uh, really scary stuff. Are, where are we right now in the development of this mass psychosis process? If you look at examples historically compared to where we're at today, how would you describe uh, our current position in the process? So when I first asked Matthias about this, he basically said that the consensus of himself and those that are within his intellectual community is that it's now proceeded to a point that it, it, is, it is well and truly embedded. And, uh, and it's going uh, to be a time before... Uh, the global society emerges out the other side. I, I personally feel uh, this is a belief. Um, I'm, I tend not to be Pollyannish, but uh, I see signs of hope that the intervention of uh, of this term and the logic behind it is having an impact on the population already. I think it's, it's introducing um, a, in, into, even into that truly hypnotized population, but definitely into the middle group. It's mm -hmm. introducing um, a, a note of caution in, in awareness and wariness that didn't exist before. Uh, the the uh, giving a intellectual construct for people to to process whether or not it's true. I mean, there's there's a whole uh, God knows there's a cast of characters that uh, in, you know funded by Google and uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that are in uh, um, absolute denial that this is a real thing and that it's actually occurring. But whether or not it actually is. Uh, I think that it gives people a framework for thinking that is maybe already starting to affect the society a bit. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guilty of being in a, a little bit of a bubble in a, perhaps you are too. Uh, uh, you know, when I was reminded by a senator the other day, I'm going to be in the Senate speaking to the Republican caucus in the near term. And I was reminded uh, by a senior aide and a senator that the majority of the caucus uh, is still back in the belief system that 
they saved huge numbers of lives with the vaccine and Operation Warp Speed is an enormous success that they can all take credit for. And uh, I was cautioned to be really gentle and slow in introducing ideas that are contrary to that. Basically, mm. what was being messaged was these guys are in the mass formation, um, right. even though they're GOP, and you're going to have to walk them out of that really carefully. Uh, so, so I'm I'm acknowledging my own uh, confirmation bias uh, due to uh, where I sit in in this information bubble space, but but I think I'm I see it. Uh, and the other thing that I I hear is feedback um, from pe people that are um, in the population, the other end of the bell curve, those that uh, have not been susceptible and are the dissenters. The feedback I hear that I've, I'm really encouraged by is um, basically, thank you, Robert, for sharing this uh this frame of reference, this this thought construct, because it allows us to not hate our opponents. It, the mm. the actual inclusion of the term psychosis apparently has a therapy. Whether or not it's justified, it's not in the DSM, uh, mm. the Diagnostics and Statistic Manual for uh, Mental Health, but it gives uh, the cohort on the other side uh, a way to. Um, empathize with those mm. that are experiencing it rather than hating them. Mm. Um, and I think that that, that may be, you know, in the spectrum of, of good stuff that comes out of me saying these little words on Joe Rogan's podcast, if it makes it so that people, so there's less hate, uh, um, that's absolutely a win. And, and might make it easier for us to come to to come back together as a society at some point in time if if we're not feeling like those that have been so resistant to the data and so uh adamant about forcing their point of view on the rest of the world uh if if we can see them as people having suffered from a uh a disorder of thought uh, rather than uh, being inherently evil, which is kind of the alternative, right? <laughs> That's great. That's wonderful because that ultimately is providing a touchstone for empathy, as you said, and in doing so, allowing us to overcome this us versus them thing we tend to get sucked into, right? And starting to see, hopefully seeing this as a holistic systemic phenomenon that to your point, and this is critical. The psychosis is not one-sided. It's not like there's just people that are going psychotic that are being preyed upon. It's the perpetrators as well, right? They believe what they're doing is good. They think that operation. I think this is, is critical. Um, and I, I suspect that this extends to some significant extent to the world economic forum crowd, mm -hmm. right. that they truly believe that the world needs a central government and that uh, they are the ones to give it to us. Uh, I, I, I think that's, that's, you know, there may be the cynical in there that are, that are actively exploiting it for economic gain or power, but I, I suspect, I doubt that, uh, let's say, to pick a name, Pete Buttigieg is uh, 
um, actively in there as a World Economic Forum young leader, uh, thinking that uh, he's going to be as rich as Bill Gates if he only plays his cards right. Yeah, it's, it's terrible and um, terrible thing to look at. And I guess embedded on all of this is this deep lack of faith in self-organization, right? We observe self-organization in nature. Why do we believe that as part of nature, we're humans, we need some, you know, monopoly of violence or force to tell us what to do, how to organize. We don't actually need that. Um, Nicely put. Uh, yeah. So, so that's why I, I personally have, have my, my, intellectual synthesis, you know, the, the short form of the political realignment uh, that I think I'm observing is instead of left versus right and that old tired uh, dichotomy, mm -hmm. we're seeing realignment along freedom to choose versus collectivism. Uh, right. And probably modify that collectivism with a central uh, authority um, uh, providing uh, a common uh, narrative uh um and and i'm with you i i think that if there's one of the silver linings that may exist is that we come through this uh with a renewed awareness of the uh, benefits of an open open kind of i don't want to open market is is i prefer not to use economic terms to describe human right. behavior but right. but a, an open, a society that uh, is comfortable and finds value in um, a more decentralized self-assembling uh, way to proceed rather than the uh, you know, central a solution provided by a, a distant authority. I, mm -hmm. I think that personally, if, if we have what I, I've said a few times, I said on Tucker too, uh, even, even if you were someone which I'm not, who, who believes in the logic of a central government, a central universal government. Let's just take that for uh, as, a, as a starting point intellectually. This, is, this, this crew is like the Keystone Cops. They can't get anything right. And mm. that's, I think that's the problem with, the, you know, we've seen it in the UN. I've seen it repeatedly in the World Health Organization. We're now seeing it in whatever the central authority is that's promoting uh, this solution of authoritarian, uh, everybody has to take the jab, uh, or, or we're going to call in the National Guard kind of logic. Mm -hmm. um, that these, these, uh, these people are, are fundamentally incompetent. And if you concede uh, your personal authority and responsibility, for yourself in your own behavior and your own life and activities to a third person, um, you are at high risk of that third person being more in incompetent than you would be. And even if not, they're, they're not going to share your interests. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well said. And I, for myself drawing on what I've learned from studying thinkers like Rothbard and Mises, the line for me is it's statism versus freedom ultimately and statism enforces taxation, which is the only business in the world that's deriving its revenues from theft, not from mutual exchange. 
the, the only non-criminal organization. And so this underneath all of this problem, I think, is the very obvious concept that it's easier to spend other people's money than it is your own. And it's also easier to be more frivolous with that spending than it is your own because you have no consequences, right? You're stealing money from people. It's very easy to misallocate that capital versus your own. So uh, the math I've looked at here is that if we had the whole world today just using Bitcoin as money, then government revenues would fall 50% worldwide, which would imply 50% smaller government. Um, I know this is something you said you haven't thought about a lot, but I'm hoping to uh, orange pill you and help you orange pill your audience at some point that we really do need Bitcoin to shrink government. Um, so as you know, the pushback I hear all the time is uh, the subversion of uh, cyber currency by the central government uh, entity um, for their own purposes uh, and transforming that to enable a social credit type uh, outcome. I'm, I find the logic of uh, the blockchain protected uh, a currency that is based on something tangible that, mm. you know, the, the computational solution to an algorithm is one um, mm. uh, tying to precious metals of some sort is another. Uh, but um, I, I, I do find the logic that um, having decoupled tender from some tangible uh, has led to uh, chronic abuse that, as you uh, rightly point out, is inherently destabilizing. You know what it is, Robert? It's a decoupling from energy expenditure. Because even precious metals like gold, what secured its supply from corruption was the energy required to mine gold, right? There's a cost, just like any business. Well, a cost production. I'm sure where you're going is that Bitcoin essentially represents an energy expenditure to derive the solution. Yeah, the purest form. That's right. <laughs> Way ahead of me on that one. Um, anyway, I, yeah, I know it's, it's a complicated area, but we've at least... I think I speak for Bitcoiners in general that we've done a lot of homework on this and there's only one solution we've identified. Um, and, and it's not just, although Bitcoin's a new phenomenon, people have been thinking and writing about this for hundreds of years. You know, it was Hayek that said a long time ago, we needed the sly roundabout way to take money out of the hands of government if we're ever to stop government. And we think that's what Bitcoin is. I'm reminded of a presentation that I saw in Chicago when I was a medical student at uh, the Museum of Science and Technology in Chicago that uh, had a presentation on money, of course, because of the importance of Chicago and trade, et cetera. Um, and that was the first time I encountered this logic uh, that, that ran through, uh, you know, the, the correlation between the skin of a deer and the buck uh, and, and that it was grounded in something tangible, but that eventually it just became uh, the value of the currency was determined by those that were exchanging it in a very kind of an arbitrary, organic way. Um, and, and so I'm, when I, with that background, when I, when I started to learn, I, I'm still very much a student of the blockchain logic, but uh, 
I'm I'm with you that that it's uh, um, it's it's compelling, mm. and uh, I personally uh, don't I don't have enough sophistication economically to uh, test the hypotheses. I'm 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 compelled that very intelligent, deep thinking people uh, have invested a ton of time in trying to sort this out and uh, and are now kind of having come up with that core, they're now exploring out from that center about what, what a cyber currency based economy might look like and what the toolkit might be. Um, I hear a variety of thinking, some sounds a bit naive, but it's, mm -hmm. it's an untested world. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah, uh, the um, yeah. I think they call it the Church of Money in Chicago. I was there with Eric Weinstein a few months ago, and their entire body of knowledge is based on deep scientific flaws. Like they think the economy is an equilibrium structure, for instance, where if you have even a cursory knowledge of complexity theory, there is equilibrium only in death. Right, everything's in disequilibrium all the time. So that's a whole rabbit hole, but. Um, this idea of inflation propelling mass psychosis, like Salem witch trials, like Hitler's rise to power, seems like it'd be wonderful if we just get rid of that entirely. This whole idea of arbitrary inflation, you know, just have a money that has 0% inflation. And that's what Bitcoin is. But, anyways, I don't want to get too far off on that tangent. Um, let me ask you I one think, last question. I think it's a great insight. I think you need to have a good uh, chin wag with Matthias over this. I will certainly get him. do my best to get him on the show. I may even lean on you to get the recommendation, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, where does this end? I mean, you mentioned this even by vocalizing the idea, the concept of mass formation psychosis. Maybe we've given people kind of a pattern interrupt to this hypnosis, so maybe it's helping wake some people up. Um, but I think in some of your writing... You, you made the point, which is maybe uh, Matthias's point, that it's just too far gone, like it has to play out. So how does this mass psychosis culminate? Uh, so he, he refers to uh, the end point. Um, one trajectory is the culture goes deeper into it. And this seems to generally spiral towards uh, violence mm. uh, and this kind of uh, retaliatory, um, uh, often violent rejection of those identified as not endorsing the, uh, the ritualistic behavior and thought patterns that are shared by those that are in the process. So, so one is uh, we move towards some sort of a, a revolutionary environment uh, where, where, where there's violence involved in a purging of, of the non-believers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's his fear when he speaks about this, the society, the culture going deeper into the mass formation process. I haven't read the whole book, um, the other phenomena he, he's shared with me is that um, there may come a time when people 
basically, I think he even used the term wake up. And uh, what he said was they'll just walk away uh, intellectually and physically from whatever they've done, even if it's uh, um, horrible things. Uh, they will they will just uh, um, one day uh, um, awake and act as if uh, none of this ever happened and go about their lives and uh, somehow psychologically set it aside. Uh, so um, uh, in you know he I think he might have cited. Uh, German people after the end of World War II, mm-hmm. as an example, where they didn't take ownership generally as a culture uh, for the atrocities that occurred. Uh, they just kind of uh, at one point um, resigned the infatuation with the Third Reich and uh, just moved on. Uh, in and rebuilt their lives without ever coming to terms with their role. And there's, I've seen various German films that are aligned with that, you know, in typically the, the setting is that a child of parents from that era uh, confronts them with uh, their atrocities or their actions. And, uh, and they don't, they they just continue to deny or or are unable to process it. It's like mm. that during the time during which they're engaged in the mass formation is is uh, depersonalized. Somehow it's outside of them, uh, mm. not part of their personality structure. Scary. Um, sounds almost like. Uh, some type of sociopathy of some kind, perhaps. Well, if you if you think of it in terms of psychosis, I mean, I'm sorry, in terms of hypnosis, that fits. Mm. I think that's right. one of the, the symptoms that that leads to this um, uh, analogy with hypnosis is uh, the person wakes up and they don't remember what happened before. Mm. It's it's out of their mind. It's it's it, it occurred in a kind of a subconscious state or something. Uh, and uh, it's not part of uh, their awakened, I don't mean in the sense of woke, but their real consciousness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, excellent points there. And then just to sort of reiterate here to, to wrap up, to fight mass psychosis, I mean, continued dialogue, continued dissidence, these are all important. I've also read that parallel structures are important. So if you can, to whatever extent you can establish yourself outside of the regime entirely, clearly that can insulate you. Uh, the idea of right. humor. As, as adaptive, an adaptive mechanism to coexist in an environment where this process is occurring. Yes, exactly. Um, again, you know, through the Bitcoin lens, like, to have money outside of the whole system is important to building those parallel structures or communities. Um, the idea of humor and making fun of these aspiring tyrants, I think is so important. Did you see JP Sears uh, clip on mass formation? Uh, I had JP on the show recently. I haven't seen his clip yet. No. 
So he sent it to me. I think he he just put it out Saturday. Um, I actually incorporated in one of my talks, uh, uh, like within an hour of when he sent it to me. He uses the metaphor of being a weatherman uh, in the not in the 60s sense, but in the broadcast news sense. Um, mm. Speaking about mass formation as like a a, a climate disturbance. Um, it's it's a wonderful metaphor, but like you say, he uses humor. I posted that in people. I, I think it makes it that that's an example where using humor uh, made the logic and the information accessible to people that otherwise found it too esoteric or academic. Yes, yeah, it's a great great example of that. We wrap it in humor. It's a better delivery mechanism for some of these important messages. Um, another way to fight back against the mass psychosis is the turn off the news or distance yourself from what I think you call the fear porn. <laughs> John, John Prine, blow up the TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then this one I thought was really interesting from your writing, uh, just folk refocusing the collective attention on a bigger threat. Right. So, so pivoting from COVID to the rise of global totalitarianism, for instance. So so Matthias, this is not my idea. This is Matthias's uh, uh, comment. And uh, um, that uh, that this he he in some of his earlier uh, podcasts spoke about how uh, raising the specter of totalitarianism seem to be particularly effective at shaking some people out of their COVID uh, hypnosis mm. because they are able to perceive uh, global totalitarianism as a bigger threat than a virus uh, like this that has a mm. fraction of a fraction of a percent mortality. Um, and uh, But he cautioned that if, if one does that, so he advocated, this is why I started talking, frankly. This is why I started using the language of totalitarianism, because mm -hmm. it was Matthias's advice that it was the one term that seemed to be particularly effective at getting people broken out of their hypnosis about uh, COVID. But, mm -hmm. um, uh, but his caution is that as you do that, you're substituting one uh, object for another, and uh, they will the the population that switches over to the new obsession uh, can just as easily be captured by a leader or a you know media meme or, or whatever uh, you know storyline, and so that the only true way to get out of this is you have to solve the social disconnectedness, which is why in I try in all of my talks to the best I'm able to kind of promote this theme of togetherness and healing. Hmm. Because the, the teaching here it from Matthias and I and I find it extremely useful, whether or not it's right, I, I think it has utility. Uh, and as a finance guy, you'll appreciate that logic. Um, but uh, so I think it has is intrinsic utility uh, that the idea that um, the root cause here is the social fragmentation and disassociation. And uh, so that's why 
I always, you know, for instance, my uh, talk on the Lincoln Memorial or my talk to the truckers the other day, I try to emphasize these three words, integrity, dignity, and community. And the community part of that messaging uh, is structured around an awareness that that is the root cause of of our susceptibility as a society to this phenomena. Mm. And it's in the, the unexpected observation for me as I've moved through time in this particular space has been that uh, it's often the communities of faith that are uh, um, seem to be particularly uh, resistant mm. to uh, this phenomena. And, uh, and as I think to myself, you know, there are those that will assert that this is the consequence of a divine providence of some kind. Uh, but, and that may or may not be true, that in my intellectual world that lives in the world of the unknowable unknown. But, mm-hmm. uh, in, but I absolutely am sure that uh, these communities of faith have at their core a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. which is what Matthias identifies as the underlying illness that gives rise to these conditions. Mm. So that that gets to the intentional community logic or unintentional community, you know, forming whether it's a Bitcoin community or whatever, mm. um, you know, or we all like to play football uh, mm-hmm. or, or whatever the thing is. Um, that gives you a sense of belonging and connectedness to other humans. I think that is the fundamental in, in for me as a, this intellectual journey over the last couple of years, one of the unexpected things is seeing um, the, in, the fundamental important importance of human connectedness uh, I think I think it is. It, it, we're talking about fundamentals of human behavior and human nature. Um, I I think we are a uh, a a species which really needs uh, a group identity or tribal identity to to feel psychologically healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ag- agreed completely. Um... I think we could even go so far to say that the fragmentation itself is psychosis, right? If you're fragmented intrapsychically, you're psychotic. If we're fragmented socially, it makes sense we have a similar psychosis. Yeah. Um, th- oh, so that's that's the that that in in terms of the thread you just introduced of uh, getting people to redirect to a different uh, focal point. Uh, that's the risk and the underlying. Uh, the diagnosis from the good doctor is that uh, we have to heal our social disconnectedness um, if we really want to heal from this process. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Lisa said, um, Robert, thank you for coming on again today. I really appreciate it. Uh, could you please, I think we did this last time, but maybe just let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work. Okay, so uh, I'm now supposed to be pumping my book. Forgive me for that. Uh, so you can find it on Amazon. Uh, the uh, publisher 
uh, Tony Lyons and Skyhorse, the people that did Bobby Kennedy's book, um, have told me I need to uh, pump this. So it's the lies uh, my government told me. I think that's the title. You can find it on Amazon. And I and I think the subtext is uh, in the the way forward or or the bright uh, future we have, something like that. That's a feel good thing. Um, so uh, there's that that I'm working on right now. Then there's the R.W. Malone M.D. Substack, which is our more substantial uh, thought pieces and also often news and literature review. And then Getter and Gab is our daily chatter of, hey, pay attention to this, or my buddy just posted this thought and you should take a peek at it. That uh, on our website, uh, rwmalonemd.com, we post, uh, we have a Rumble account now and we have various little blog pieces and often key data or, or PDFs or something that we'll refer to in the Substack we post there. Then there's the globalcovidsummit.org, which is the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, and uh, the Unity Project, unityprojectonline.com is the organization that pays me a little stipend for serving as their chief science, I'm sorry, chief medical and regulatory officer. They're the group that is focused on resisting the mandates for the children. Thank you, sir, for all your work. We will link to that in the show notes. Robert, really appreciated it and really enjoyed this conversation. Good. Thank you, Robert. And let's let's get you and Matias hooked up. <laughs> let's do that. Thanks so much.